Open Field Radio. Like, subscribe, share, and review wherever podcasts are found. If I had to describe this, I'd say it's cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Because ag and life live side by side and sometimes overlap. I'm your host, Mark Flint, and this is Open Field Radio. Brought to you by Gowan Company. Marshall Trimble, Scottsdale, Arizona. Arizona's official state historian. Ancient cultures, ag history, cowboys, ranchers, and wide open space. We talk it all right now. Well, I found in my travels, I found that uh, Arizona is a is uh, there's more curiosity about Arizona than there is about Texas. You know, when you travel to Ireland or Wales or someplace. Is it really? A place where they're fascinated with Americans. You are, and I, I dug around online looking at things and, of course, looking up all the, everything I could find about you, which is plenty. There's a lot. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I don't even look at that stuff. I'm afraid I'd get embarrassed. No, you should be proud. It's quite accomplished. It's quite a list out there. But it says, um, I've got educator, lecturer, folk singer, stage performer, and Arizona's official state historian. Which is your favorite? Well, uh, you know, it's like asking uh, uh, the old woman that lived in a shoe. She had so many kids, she didn't know what to do. That old uh, story we learned in grade school, and her poem, I guess. And uh, I, I love it all. I still do most of it. Um, I'm not teaching anymore, although I still guess lecture once in a while. I haven't done any uh, uh, public appearances since February, and but sure. that's been the story with everybody yeah. that does what I do. Right. Uh, you've written twenty books on Arizona and the West. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's closer to twenty-five. Wow. Well, answer answer this for me then. Where does the West start? How far east does the West go? Well, it, to me, the Mississippi River. Okay. Because that, that's the old traditional, you know, from where Lewis and Clark launched. Sure. It's, it's not just certain places or the Southwest or the Northwest or the. Uh, but it, but it's it, it's it's all that area. It's all it's all different. Uh, it's, it's from North Dakota, you know, to Arizona. People dealt with different hardships in different places, but in some it was all it was all the same. Right. <laughs> I'm just writing a piece right now for True West magazine. The one thing they all had, they faced all kinds of perils, uh, but the one they the one they dreaded the most was disease. Oh, interesting. And sure. This was in the 19th centuries. These these things would just could kind of plague a whole town um and uh or families and so um but but they all they all faced something you know there was it was the but it was it, it was the the environment too you know it was in arizona it was the hot dry uh in north dakota and uh, up on the plains it was those brutal winters but oh. yeah uh, <laughs> oh. there is no perfect place i've decided yeah, I <laughs> although i i thought right. uh, i thought southwest colorado it's one of the most beautiful places I oh, ever my never spent any time around Durango and Silverton and and Ridgeway and and Montrose and all of those places. Uray and Telluride, but, uh, and... but boy, the winters are long. Well, where did your love for Arizona and the West come from? You know, um, the Trimbles. The Trimbles came from uh, Texas, and um, our grandmother told us used to tell us stories about uh, the Texas history, especially around San Antonio. And I think Grandma exaggerated a little bit uh, uh, with, her, with her stories, but <laughs> but still they were good stories. And so I had uh, from from the very 
earliest part of my life, I was I had an interest, but I didn't put it together with uh, teaching or writing anything like that. And when I, in the early '60s, uh, when I graduated from college, um, I hooked up with a uh, folk singer, uh, with a couple of folk singers from California. Okay, and we hit the road. And we were playing up in a lot of this area in California where it's burning now, um, uh, and uh, up Lone Pine and all the way up to Tahoe. And we played in those in that summer of 63. And I saw, God, every place we'd go in these mining towns and things like that, uh, the people were so anxious to share their history with you. Because, you know, you were you were playing in a bar at night sure. and then had the days free. They wanted to really entertain you, they felt. And I just, I look at the stamp mills. We'd go out on ranches and work roundups uh, in the daytime okay. just as a volunteer. And, and then in 19, right around 1970, my brother was um, um, was up in Colorado going to vet school at Fort Collins. He knew I was kind of searching. The, the, with the Vietnam War, I'd already, I'd already served in the Marines. Uh, one of our group, it's like a Johnny Cash song, <laughs> one of our group got married and the other one got drafted. Yeah, it is a Johnny Cash Vietnam. song, I think. It's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. And uh, I think it was the one on the right was on the left and the one on the left <laughs> exactly. was on the right. Exactly. Something like that. Uh, he said, why don't you come up and, why don't you come up to Montana uh, it was in the summertime, and I've got I'm going to be working a roundup in Mile City, Montana, and uh, you can play cowboy. And so, um, who would turn uh, that down? Well, I did at first, and then I called him back about an hour later, and I said, uh, <laughs> "Meet me at the airport in Denver. I'm on my way." <laughs> That's great. And so I was single then, and uh, and so um, uh, and he was he was in vet school, so we were both pretty footloose and fancy free. Sure. And 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 his his wife Mary, the three of us jumped in a truck and drove to Mile City. Worked up there for about oh I don't know a week or ten days or something, and um, we were heading back, and um, we ran into a storm, um, and we thought we better turn south and head down towards uh, towards Sheridan, Wyoming. And on, we stopped in this little town called Hardin. It was dark. It was after sundown, and it was uh, and it was just everything. The town they just rolled up the sidewalks, and uh, there was one little place we saw that the lights were on, and it was a library. And so um, we went into this library, and and uh, we were looking around, and and this lady said, "Well, you know where you where you are, don't you?" And we said, uh, "No, we're in Hardin," but she said. Custer's last stand was just up the road. Oh my! And the whole battlefield is there. And so she told us all about the story. All I knew about Custer was Errol Flynn played him in, in the movie. They died with their boots on. Right. I had no knowledge at all. But we pulled out, and it was it was still it was still storming the next day, and just a light just a light misty rain was falling, and there was nobody else there, and there was not much of a there was not much of a anything built there yet. And um, anyway, we um, yeah, walked around there, and they went off in one direction looking at some. I went off in another direction, and and I I felt like I was being uh, called. Sure. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. No, I understand. And I just felt a presence around there, and I was looking at the markings where all the bodies were found, and and just scattered all over, and and it was just it was just kind of a very somber right. uh, place, and so. Um, I wandered around and wandered around, and when I came back, uh, we met back at the truck, and um, as we were driving on down to Sheridan, uh, they were both asleep, and I, I, I finally just said, uh, hey, 
uh, wake up, i got to tell you something. Uh, I know what I want to do now. I want to teach the things I've seen this last two or three weeks. And and uh, and all I saw when I was a folk singer uh, of of the West, from Lewis and Clark to the outlaws and lawmen and and the cowboys and and uh, ranchers and all this. Oh, that's I was, great! I was, I was thirty years old, and I said, "I I know what I want to do now." Open Field Radio. Like, share, subscribe. Look, it's this simple: agitate, expose, and improve control with Captiva Prime Insecticide. Captiva Prime is OMRI approved and compatible for use with or around beneficial insects. That's a good thing. Captiva Prime has the unique ability to drive the insects and the mites out of hiding for more contact with treated surfaces, increasing the exposure time of other contact insecticides in your tank mix. And it's labeled for use on outdoor and indoor crops. Always read and follow label directions from Gowan Company. Open Field Radio. Let's talk about Arizona a little bit here. In Arizona... Agriculture today is a, a big part of the economy, a big part of everyday stuff going on. But it hasn't always been here, or has it? Well, uh, in a way, it has. Yeah, uh, the the first uh, we could go back to the whole com, the farmers, uh, and the and and the battalion uh, along the Colorado River. Right. Uh, they were they were they were farmers, um, and they, they were also they were also people who did you know they were hunters and gatherers for a while, but. When uh, they introduced corn from Mexico, they were um, uh, they became f- farmers. They could cultivate a crop. When they were hunters and gatherers, they they had to go to wherever the wild fruit was growing, the cactus, you know, the cactus plants and sure. cactus flowers and things, right? Uh, their cactus fruit, and um, but by being able to farm uh, to grow crops, um, you know, especially maize or corn, things like that. Uh, they 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 could sustain themselves in one place, and they didn't have to go wondering where the next meal was going to come from. And so that was the beginning of agriculture, and that was probably about just about the time of Christ. Okay. And when the um, when the Americans came in uh, in well, let me go back to about 1690 when the Jesuits came in from uh, Mexico. Right. Um, this was called the Pimaria Alta, and they um, they were coming up to. They introduced livestock, cattle, and they introduced citrus trees to the Indians, and the Indians had never had cattle before. Okay. And, of course, they, they brought horses, too. They were Spanish. And they introduced these crops uh, that, that, that you could grow, and they came into southern Arizona first and um, eventually got over to Yuma around 1680, but um, the along the Santa Cruz River, and they farmed, and they had to... Um, uh, and I, I call them the first, the first cattlemen, the Jesuit priests. But they didn't work the cattle. Uh, the Indians, the Mission Indians, worked the cattle okay. on horseback. All right. And so, um, so the Indian was introduced to the horse, and the introduced. So the, so the first cowboy was an Indian. Wow. And then we fast forward a little bit to the, um, um, the, the late 1700s. The Spanish made a made a, a, a treaty or an agreement. As they call it, it was called the Establecimiento de Paz, and establishments for peace. And it was to tame, to try to take, uh, get the Apache uh, uh, to stop going to war with them, and um, and declare some sort of an armed truce. So they armed the they armed the Apache, tried to get them away from those lethal bow and bows and arrows and spears. They gave them second second hand weapons, out of date weapons. Inferior weapons. All right. And they also gave them introduced alcohol. Uh-oh. 
and uh, is to get them dependent on the Spanish establishments, these establecimiento. They had to kind of behave themselves or they wouldn't get it. And so uh, that was the, that, and then uh, at that time, um, there was a lure to Arizona, the river valleys, especially of Santa Cruz, and that was to uh, to ranch. And so they started issuing Spanish first, issuing these large land grants, big, big, big parcels of property along the southern part of Arizona, over around Nogales, and uh, up and down the river there, mm-hmm. uh, all the way to um Tucson was established in 1775, and so uh, they couldn't get any further north because there was a barrier up there, the Tonto Apache and the Yavapai, and to the east there was a there's the Chiricahua Apache uh, barrier. Uh, but along the Santa Cruz area, and they were so they they were what they they called Apaches de Paz, uh, peaceful Apaches. So that was the period that was the period there where these large, huge ranches uh, and and they're they're Arivaca and um, oh, um, uh, Rafael, San Rafael, and, and Canoa, and all these huge Buena Vista uh, lands grants. And then about, um, well, in the Mexican Revolution, the Mexicans were so disjointed, uh, everything, this was forgotten. And they forgot the treaties where they were supplying, uh, giving supplies to the, uh, to the Apaches. And when that happened, the Apache went back on the warpath. And by 1848, about 1845-48, they had driven all of the Mexican ranchers out. They were no longer Spanish. Wow. They were now Mexican. And they had driven them out. All those ranches were abandoned. And they abandoned them, cattle and all. You know, they just headed back for safer areas in Mexico. And so that was about the time, enter the Americans, uh, with the Mexican War in 1846 to 8. And... Um, and they saw this, and it was all virgin land. And so they, um, uh, the first one was was a man named Kirkland, Bill Kirkland, came in, and he had the first ranch in 1857, and that was on the Santa Cruz River. Uh, it was at Canoa, which is between uh, Tucson and Nogales. So that was how that uh, uh, that, that was how ranching the Americans came in and uh, were ranching. But if, uh, then, right after that, the Civil War came. And with the Civil War, the army, the American army, abandoned Arizona altogether. They burned down the forts, hmm. and um, there was an incident with the kidnapping of a Mexican uh, uh, boy uh, that, uh, that the Cochise and the Chiricahua were accused of taking him, and they didn't. But they were, they were, the army accused him of it, and they were, and people died on mm-hmm. both sides, mm-hmm. and so along more. Uh, um, Cochise War lasted for 10 years and it became no man's land. Um, I've written about it so many times. I mean, there was there were about 60 people at the, wor- la- the worst part of it, about 60 Americans le- left in Tucson. Wow. And so it was almost abandoned. So they headed for the Colorado River and the Yuma Indians weren't too happy with them. The Yuma Indians were pretty um, were, were pretty warlike. Interesting. And uh, so there, you, the only thing that you could do if you were going west West was go to California, all the way to California. Yeah, don't stop. And uh, to escape the to escape the uh, you know the war, and um, it was it was just uh, they were just wiping out anybody anybody that was white and, okay. uh, and Mexican. So um, so that would last through up through the Civil War, and um, then the ranching came back after the war. But the wars were still going on. Cochise was still at war, um, and would be till about eighteen seventy. 
and it takes us right to right to the beginning of a whole new era. Uh, about that time, uh, there was a great drought in Texas, so the Texans discovered, you know, there was a there was there was there, there's virgin lands here where the grass was stir up high, mm-hmm. and they started gathering their cattle and moving Texas cattle into this virgin land. This is mostly southern Arizona then. Okay. At the time, the railroads were being built uh, across Arizona, and uh, the Southern Pacific on the southern side and the uh, Santa Fe on the northern side. And as the railroads opened up this land, now um, you could ship cattle places. Oh. So this, this was a bigger invitation to, uh, and you could also, they were also selling uh, selling uh, beef to the, to the military posts. And that coincided with this discovery of silver and tombstone, and uh, and gold uh, in the Prescott area and along the Gila River down near Yuma. And so they were going to need supplies. You know, there was a market there for cattle. And so um, that was the beginning of the big ranching. And then in 1884, um, the uh, a company organized in New York City called itself the Aztec Land and Cattle Company. And their brand was a camp cook, looked like a camp cook's hash knife. Okay. They call them the hash knife. Sure. And they they imported by rail eighty thousand, no sixty thousand. It was sixty thousand head of cattle into northern Arizona. And up to that time, the only the only ranch up there, if you could call it one, uh, with livestock was uh, a Mormon cows, a Mormon dairy. <laughs> so okay. Like Flagstaff was just a spot in the, uh, on the railroad, and and that's where it really that's where it really began. Uh, with northern Arizona, and the Babbitts came in from Cincinnati mm-hmm. and um, opened up their ranch, the CO Bar. I wrote a book about that many years ago. Uh, CO was for Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, I, I forgot one rancher. One rancher that needs to be <laughs> should be be never forgotten, and, and that was in the 1860s when all of the other ranchers were driven out. Uh, Pete Kitchen and um, his wife Doña Beatrice built a fortress. Uh, at Calabasas, which is uh, northern Nogales, today's Nogales. Okay. And um, it was right on the Apache um, um, raiding trail into Mexico. The main trail was down the Santa Cruz Valley Okay. Uh, into Mexico. But they tried any way, every way possible to drive him out, and he wouldn't go. He said, I guess much right to be here as you do. Oh, my. And, uh, and he survived pretty soon. He he took he, he cost him so many lives. They decided let's let's skirt that place. Let's go around it. <laughs> and, Leave uh, him alone. So they left him alone. Yeah. So his name is Pete Kitchen, and he was the most famous of the early early ranchers. So the 1870s and 80s were really boom times. Uh, reservations, military post, drought in Texas, um, virgin country. They loved it to death, as you know, in ranching. Back then, they just didn't know. Everybody says they spoiled it, but they did. it was out of ignorance. It was just, why, why, why have just two cows on that, uh, in that acreage when we can have eight, eight or ten? And they did it all over the West. They overgrazed, they just overgrazed the West to death. Europeans got involved in ranching, and um, uh, not so much in Arizona as they did out on the plains and in Montana. Then in, in, in 1886 and 1887, 1888, they had the greatest blizzards that this, the West had ever seen at that time. And uh, cattle just died by the thousands. There were carcasses all over the plains, and, it, and a lot of ranches went belly up on that. Oh, and then another thing was introduced, barbed wire, and they started fencing the ranges. 
and then they started doing more selective breeding on the ranches and um um guys like Henry Clay Hooker uh, came into the Sulphur Springs Valley and uh, talk about a spread it was 800 square miles of range oh my gosh and um a lot of us cattle were going to the to the military posts and to the reservations and such and the rest were being shipped east by uh, by rail um out of, out of um, Wilcox and uh, Santa Fe up same up north and at the same time Phoenix had come to life now uh, from uh, as a spinoff of the gold, uh, they opened up those old Hohokam um, irrigation ditches and cleaned them out. And um, the, uh, these had been engineered by Hohokam with no tools, uh, digging only to dig with dug with sticks. And but they they were engineered amazingly uh, to make the water gravity flow come out of the north part of the valley and flow south back down to the Salt River by the Indians. Yeah, these were the whole come way back, uh, uh, starting with prehistoric times. More of Open Field Radio after this. So here you go. EcoSwing from Gowan, USA is an OMRI-approved botanical fungicide created using proprietary plant extracts. Gotta love it. EcoSwing is labeled for use on many different crops to control powdery mildew, botrytis, monolinia, alternaria, and several other diseases. And it's a global leader in fungicidal control of several key pathogens. EcoSwing makes a valuable addition to your integrated pest management program. Add another mode of action to your disease control defense and combat possible resistance from overuse of other actives. EcoSwing. Always read and follow label directions from Gowan Company. And now back to Open Field Radio with our guest, Arizona's official state historian, Marshall Trimble. All right, well, let's take a little right turn here. Can you shed a little more light on the Hohokam? Well, the Hohokam, uh, they were one of the major, uh, uh, the um, uh, the the other ones were, were the uh, Mugion, which inhabited the mountain country, and the uh, Anasazi, as they were, as they used to call them, right. but now they're they're called um, uh, euphemistically the uh, ancestral pueblo. So, uh, oh, okay. uh, I think I think Anasazi was a derogatory word, and uh, Navajos felt, although they didn't descend from them. Um, but all of these, something catastrophic happened in the American Southwest. Um, right around uh, 1300, and there was a there was a great drought. We know that, that lasted 24 years. Okay, <laughs> like wow. kind of like today. Yeah, no kidding, huh? <laughs> We're about to take that, take that, beat that record, I think. But um, it was in 1276 to 1299, and that um, and that caused a, a, a big change, a big cultural change. And here in um, uh, the 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 Mugion, we believe the Mugion probably uh, might have gone into Mexico and uh, wound up down around Casas Grandes okay. uh, uh, today in Chihuahua. But um, and the uh, Anasazi, um, we believe uh, that they didn't really disappear, uh, but they, they they left those cliff, cliff dwellings. And there's a good there's a good uh, there's a good reason to believe that that uh, warlike tribes like the Apache and the Navajo had begun to migrate down into this area from up north. Oh, I see. They were uh, Athabascan-speaking people, and um, they might have just driven the Anasazi out, but they didn't leave. Um, there's still remnants of them today uh, in, in, among the Hopi uh, and the Zuni and the Pueblo Indians of New Mexico. But still, a long drought that uh, would have a 24-year drought, almost a quarter century, sure. um, uh, could have driven a lot of them out, and uh, only a few remained, and uh, those were up on the Hopi mesas. 
And then what happened down here is um, here this great culture with all this agriculture and all this water, you'd have thought did something. What what else happened here? That's that's a great mystery because uh, they did leave. Uh, uh, they when uh, people think that the Pima may have descended from them or that the Onlotum, but um, but they uh, the Hohokam were far more sophisticated, and the Spanish realized that when they came in, the explorers, the the Hohokam were the master farmers uh, 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 and the greatest farmers uh, agriculturally, uh, probably in all of the Americas. All, I mean, uh, all of North America. Wow! And um, they had maybe forty, fifty thousand people right here in the Salt River Valley, and they extended clear over to the Colorado River, and north to the Mogollon Rim, and south into Mexico. So they really were a huge, right. uh, huge culture. And we think I say this because nobody knows for sure. Uh, only the most durable of their artifacts survived. Okay. Um, and so. With all this, uh, and that's mostly been the pottery that farmers found. Uh, I've talked to farmers who have dug them up with their plows uh, down in the in the Gila Valley. Oh, really? You know, and they had had collections that were they were priceless. Mostly, they didn't they donated them to uh, museums and sure. such. But um, but yeah, the plows would just uncover them when they were when they were uh, furrowing through the, through the area. Something drove them out, and it might have been it might have been an epidemic. That uh, decimated their numbers, uh, and it might have been war, warrior tribes, the Apache maybe, or the Mountain Indians, the Mountain Tribe that became the Tonto Apache and the Yavapai, uh, might have done might have done something. But um, we think that a, a lot of the Hohokam drifted up into Hopi country. But there was a there was a lot there was a big vacuum in time there where there's some unaccounted a lot of unaccounted for time, uh, 100 200 years, and it's quite a bit, and so that. Uh, uh, but they, they figured that the Hohokam were already a well-established culture when they arrived. They arrived that way from somewhere. They cultivated, uh, I mentioned corn earlier, but right. also bean, beans and squash and, um, uh, and, and, and even cotton. I, I think we mentioned that sure. earlier. They yeah. go made a fiber out of cotton. But many, none of these things have really survived. And, but their ball courts did, uh, and their amphitheaters did. And that tells you that when a culture has uh, has time, <laughs> look at us to to go to ball games and 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 uh, and go to theaters. Um, they're 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 not living hand to mouth. They're not they're not starving. No, they're thriving exactly. So they were doing. And then the other thing that amazed twentieth century engineers was their canal their canal work. Um, um, I mentioned that too. They had a gravity flow worked a gravity flow canal and the Grand Canal here in Phoenix. Uh, is uh, was is, was an old Hohokam canal, and they just they dug it. And a scientist uh, at that time said, uh, "There's nothing we can we can't improve on the grade here." That's and how amazing. did they do it? They're amazing. Yeah, and they had a they had the, the Casa Grande uh, monument, uh, the Casa Casa Grande um, um, uh, ruins, I guess we'd call it down there, are uh, are one of the few standing uh, structures, and they now have it preserved. But uh, they left very little, and and when they left, uh, they left a great. It was a great mystery. And it's a big mystery. They didn't have isn't a, it? any. Uh, they didn't have anything written down, obviously. Yeah. So we can, and maybe maybe a whole lot of it is buried underneath the city of Phoenix. Uh, an amazing feat uh, that um, that they did with what primitive tools and and um, nothing nothing but just manual labor.
But anyway, that was it, and it started. So um, during the 1870s and 80s, especially the 80s, they they started feeding cattle, fattening them up here in the Salt River Valley. And um, the same with sheep. Sheep were being introduced uh, in northern Arizona from from coming in from coming over from Mex- New Mexico. So you had the sheep and the cattle business going, and then they were winter. They'd winter the sheep down here. Uh, in the Salt River Valley, in the in the spring, they drive them up to the high country, where they'd um, um, the Basque, mostly the Basque, and then they have quite a history that a lot of people aren't aware of the Basque you know, with with the sheep sheep raising. And anyway, they'd um, keep them up there all summer and then drive them back. And down here, when the rails came, when Phoenix got the railroad mm-hmm. in 1887, they built up from the Maricopa. Well, with the introduction of the irrigation. Obviously, that was the beginning of a change agriculturally here, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was how you could control your destiny, and that was what the whole come were able to do by by irrigation. You know, they didn't have to go out and move from place to place where right. wherever something was ripe. Mm-hmm. What were the, I was say, what were the early crops through the central and southern parts of Arizona? Mostly mostly it was corn then and um and you could grow cotton too for fiber. Uh, they were growing cotton, um, and and um, and they could also use the seeds. They grind up the seeds, and they could make flour with them. Okay. So those those were the main things that uh, that they could that they were doing. But and as the population of Arizona grew and continues to grow, of course, that obviously had an effect both on agriculture, the demand, the the land. The all those things that go with it. Yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, I've seen a I've seen a lot of change in, in my lifetime. Um, the where where you know the these people like out in Buckeye, uh, for example, these people have just been farmers eking out a living for years and years, generations, and all of a sudden uh, the, the the taxes go up on the land. They can't even they can't afford to keep the land. Right. Uh, you know, farming is not a not a big. You don't have a big surplus of cash, and so um, so a lot of these families. I know some of these families that lived in Buckeye that, that uh, I met as, met as a historian. They were just just farmers. Well, they they weren't poor anymore, but they were farmers, big sure. farmers, and they sold that land to a developer. And now they live in really nice houses in Terravita. But they do. (laughs) Was the cowboy a farmer and the farmer a cowboy or rancher? Were they all one and the same? Well, uh, we sort of distinguish, uh, we we distinguish ranchers as as people uh, with a bigger place and with cattle. Has to do with cattle, uh, beef cattle. Sure. And we take a farmer as a farmer uh, is growing crops. He's feeding people. Well, okay. The, the rancher is too, but um, the ranch, uh, the, the the farmer is giving him things that uh, you know, uh, more nutritional type things. Sure, he's for, growing it. Uh, uh, well, I guess the rancher and, is too. Yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, that, and and the farmer, farmers also they the cotton. You know, you, you won't hear a guy up say, "I'm a cotton rancher." It's usually a cotton farmer. Sure. With, with the expansion of land and all those kind of things, especially in those developmental times, were there land feuds and those kind of things? Those those great you know family yeah, to yeah, family battles did. and those kind of things. Yeah, you did have you did have some, but uh, not as uh, not as bad as Texas. Texas had a lot of notorious feuds. We really only had um, one major, and that was the Tewksburys and the Grahams. Okay. Uh, up in what's now Gila County. Oh. Okay. And uh, that that was over. That was that was that was over, you know, 
that had a lot. It was complicated. They say it's a sheepman cattleman war. That's way oversimplifying it. And I've written about that too. And it's it's uh, um, it was rustling, um, stealing, uh, livestock theft, and and um, feuds. And once a feud once a feud gets going, uh, it becomes a uh, a um, biblical uh, eye for an eye. Sure. You kill one of us, right. we're going to kill one of yours. Probably hard and, to stop. Uh, we're huh? going to keep killing one of each. Right. <laughs> but uh, but that had a that uh, that had the hash knife cowboys, which are a bunch of really rough hewn Texas cowboys, were imported here, and um, and of course in in, in cattle ranching, uh, a lot of guys get their start by stealing a start. Oh, and, uh, it's what they call it, stealing a start, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you're rustling some of the boss's cows. <laughs> and the boss forgets that maybe that's the same way he started the ranch sure. twenty years before. But uh, uh, now he looks at, he looks at a ranch at, at, at a rustler as a as a as a guy needs to be hung. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, you had but we didn't have we didn't have those kind of those, those kind of range wars. Were there any legendary cowboys in Arizona history? Oh, quite a few. Uh, there were. Um, I think of the ranchers more than I do the uh, uh, the cowboys themselves, but. Because um, to be a cowboy, you were, I think your mission was to settle down someday. Cowboy is, is body-breaking work, riding a bucking horse or breaking horses and uh, roping and riding, and, and it's a hard life. You bet. And after a while, you just, you know, it wears you down, and uh, you'd, be kind of, you'd be old by the time you were 40, Ugh. and um, or your body would be. Right. And so these guys, they would, um, they would want to be a, have, have a ranch. I see. Have your own place. Sure. Have your own cows. Right. Even if you had to steal a, a, a few to get it started. Exactly. When did, uh, in in the history of all of this, obviously ranching was a big part of it and um, an epic part of it, really. When did what we see now, like the leafy green world, the lettuces and the on and on, yeah. on when, did, when did that arrive? Well, and it, in, in between that, we had cotton. cotton. Okay. Uh, cotton was kind of late, too. Cotton didn't come, uh, really come, although they were, uh, uh, we like to say Arizona was uh, uh, was probably the oldest cotton-growing place in America because the prehistoric Indians grew cotton. Oh. And the Pima Indians were growing cotton hundreds of years ago. Um, and like I think I said a while ago, they were using the fiber uh, for clothes and, and the seeds for uh, for flour. And then in 1870s, the Anglo farmers um, uh, started growing cotton, uh, and but they were only growing. It was really on a small level. They were really only growing it, and it was a short staple uh, for um, comforters and mattresses. Fill, use cotton to uh, fill up a mattress. I see. And um, then about in the 1880s, they it was still pretty short. Still using the short uh, short staple cotton, and um, uh, but the, the prices were low on cotton so there was more profit in alfalfa and grain so the arizona farmers were more into that than than they were short staple cotton in 1902 uh the yuma you probably know you knew you know this already but <laughs> the yuma long staple egyptian cotton was developed at the yuma, yuma experimental farm okay and and in then in, in 1911 this is how slow it it, it, try, it, it took to become king cotton but a few acres of Yuma cotton uh, were planted in the Salt River Valley. Now, that was about the time Arizona became a state. And then in 1912, um, Mesa farmers planted some 300 plus acres of Yuma Yuma cotton. I'll be Yuma long staple. Okay. Uh, and by 1917, 
um, cotton was the leading industry on the Salt River. And then it was about that time World War One came, and a brand evolved from the Yuma cotton. Um, it evolved at Sacatone uh, on the Yuma um, River Indian Reservation, and it's called Pima. It wasn't the Pima Indians that developed it. It was developed at, a, at an experimental station. Okay. Uh, and the average length of the fiber, believe it or not, I'm really poor on numbers, so I have to write them down so I won't forget. But um, the length of the fiber was one and eleven sixteenths, and it was the longest in the world. Really? So, um, uh, and and that with World War One, and uh, the the Germans uh, had uh, had blocked the Egyptian cotton uh, from America. So we were desperate to develop a long staple cotton uh, because could no longer get the Egyptian. And so that's when they that's when they begin to really uh, work on this uh, Pima long staple. And for uniforms, uh, fiber, and for airplanes, for uh, uh, those uh, balloons, um, and so cotton was king. Well, you know, you know Arizona inside and out. Official state historian. If I would ask, in a nutshell, what's your favorite thing about Arizona? Um, open space. Oh, I love that. Open space. Ninety percent of the people in Arizona live on 2% of the land. Wow. And that means there's a whole lot of wide open space. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. Still. Still. Well, the West is a vast, vast place, and you are a, a, a vast wealth of knowledge of it. I'm still learning. <laughs> You've been listening to Open Field Radio from Gowan Company. Like, share, subscribe, review. Everywhere podcasts are found. All rights reserved. No duplication or redistribution without permission.